here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivy podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a girlfriend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Welcome, welcome to the happy hour today, you guys. It is our last Wednesday in the month of May. If you are like me, it is our last Wednesday of school year. My kids get out this Friday. We are so excited for the summer. Summers for us are super fun. We pack them sometimes too full, but with so much fun stuff. My kids have exciting things going on this summer. Erin and I have exciting things this summer. Plus, we are going to actually schedule in some rest time. So happy last Wednesday of May. Today, my guest is Aaliyah Joy. We're closing out May with Aaliyah, which is a perfect conversation because May has been Mental Health Awareness Month. This conversation that I had with Aaliyah a couple of weeks ago was eye-opening for me in the fact that I haven't had direct life experience with bipolar illness or suicidal thoughts. And I can honestly say I'm so thankful to have met Aaliyah Joy and to have her sit down with me in my studio because she shares so much wisdom with us. For those of us who may not understand this because it's never directly affected us, we have Aaliyah today to talk with us about it. And I want you to lean in and listen close. Today, we talk about a lot of different things. One of the things we talk about is how Aaliyah's parents were missionaries to Nepal. Aaliyah came down with leukemia at the age of five, which forced her family to leave the mission field and come home to Hawaii. And it was extremely difficult to her family due to this Western church view of faith versus a global church view of faith. You've got to hear her tell the story. She had some more childhood trauma in her life. She was molested as a child. And the pain and losses that she experienced in following God as a child actually led to years of bitterness. But in the darkest of times, she saw God meeting her in her desperation. She says, when I am weak, he is strong. Is weakness my spiritual gifting? You're gonna really, really enjoy this conversation. I read a lot of her book and I highly recommend it for you guys to check that out as well. We'll talk about it in the conversation. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you guys how important it is for the happy hour to get ratings and reviews over on iTunes. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal to you guys, but let me tell you, when you give us, we'll take a five-star rating, okay? When you give us a five-star rating, it helps other people see our show. And we want a lot of people listening to the happy hour because we have amazing guests on here. We want people to hear about mental health awareness. We want people to be aware of the conversations that we're having at the happy hour. So, We would love it if you would take the time sometime in the next week to rate and review the show. We'd also love it if you would share it. I see you guys tagging me on Instagram all the time when you share the show, and it makes my heart so happy. I love sharing shows that I'm listening to on Instagram. So if you do share, we'd love to see it. Tag us on Instagram so we can see it. But will you please rate and review the show on iTunes this week? We would be so thankful. Okay, guys, here is my conversation with Aaliyah. Hey, Aaliyah, welcome to the happy hour. Hey, good to be here. So thankful that you're here. Before we jump into talking about something super fun and exciting, like (laughs) 
God glorifying through our weakness. <laughs> super fun. Super fun. <clears throat> um, introduce yourself and tell everyone where you live, your family, things like that. Okay. I live in Central Oregon um, with my husband, Josh, and my three children. I have an 18-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 10-year-old. They both just, the two younger ones both just had birthdays in March. So you had I'm the getting used to yeah, doing uh-huh. the, the, the rounding up to the next. Um, and then my little tiny Asian mother lives with us. So it's a full house. <laughs> and then um, my husband's a painter and we live on an acre. We have chickens and a bunny and a dog that's, um, well, he's he's a border collie Austra- Australian shepherd. So he's a, he's a fun dog to have around, but he's a lot of work. <laughs> that's so great. Yeah. Um, you just released a book mm-hmm. uh, in April and uh, it's called Glorious Weakness. And I read a lot of this book over the past week. And I first want to tell you, thank you for writing this. Thank you. You know, I talk a lot about being vulnerable with our stories Mm -hmm. and being authentic. And when I read that and see that, there's something really beautiful to it. Mm -hmm. And so you did that in this work. And so I also know that sometimes that's really hard. Yeah. And sometimes that's difficult because you have to go back and you have to sit in emotions that you might not even feel anymore. Right. You have to write about. So first of all, thank you for writing this. You're welcome. And thanks. This sucked me in from the very beginning. You said, this book isn't for everyone. I was like, oh, that's bold. <laughs> you said, my publisher's marketing team might not want me to tell you that. <laughs> book sales being what they are these days, especially for a relatively obscure first-time author who is known primarily for writing her feelings on the internet. But there you have it. And then you um, you talk, and I'm going to flip all the way back to chapter nine. And you said, a few years ago, I spoke. No, I preached. Good for you, girl. And the message was simple. When I am weak, he is strong. Mm-hmm. I said, weakness is a holy invitation to allow grace to do its work. And I asked, what if weakness was a spiritual gift? But what I was really wondering was, is it mine? Was my spiritual gift weakness? And could that even be a thing? Mm -hmm. I think it's a thing. Let's go there. (laughs) I mean, because you said glorious weakness. I want to like go all the way back. I Mm -hmm. want you to talk about you had had a hard childhood. And let's Mm -hmm. talk about how God has actually used things in your life and Mm -hmm. shown you weakness Mm -hmm. and you've seen his glory through it. So Mm -hmm. talk with me first. Let's go back and talk about childhood. Mm -hmm. What did that look like for you? Um, So I was born to missionary parents. Uh, You know, they became Christians in the seventies during the whole Jesus movement. And there was a, there was an idealism and a zeal that was there, not necessarily maturity in some areas. Um, And they had that, you know, this, sort of theology that, you know, the clock is ticking and like the, you know, the rapture, like it's a, everything's coming to an end and this is the end time, you know, all of that. Um, and so they were, they were going to go make disciples. That was, that was their thing. And um, they believed, you know, my mom had, had become a Christian and had read all of the missionary biographies and just was an incredibly idealistic person. And so they both, um, they joined Youth with a Mission. We ended up moving uh, I actually celebrated my first birthday in Holland. Is that YWAM? Mm-hmm, YWAM, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. So they were there. Um, they did that. We were in uh, Europe, all over Europe for a while. And then we moved to Nepal. Um, and this is the early 80s. And so we were there for a while in, in community. And then I got diagnosed with leukemia. And so we ended up going back to Holland um, for treatment. And, and you're um, how old at this point? I'm five. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, and then from there we went back to Hawaii, which is where I'm originally from and coming back re-entry was, I think the hardest part, you know, when we went to Nepal, I think they just, 
I mean, they thought they were going to live their whole lives there. Like, yeah. you know, that this was what God had called them to. This was the thing. And um, they just had this sort of monumental faith. And we went there, you know, they've got two kids and I think they had $75 a month pledge support, mm-hmm. you know, and they were just like, God's going to provide. So they, they had that um, just deep, deep trust in God. But when we came back to the States and we were in a churches, you know, in the North American church, which looks at trusting God like that as just complete foolishness, right? It's just ridiculous. Why, you know, why would you take two kids to Nepal? And look, she got sick, you know, like prove that God, God isn't faithful if you like, you know, aren't in America and mm. like doing, making all the choices and doing all the things. And so it was a, it was sort of catastrophic to their faith. I think there was just a lot of crisis we were thrown in, a lot of trauma. I don't think they talked about post-traumatic stress as much back then, but they were definitely experiencing it. And we had just had a lot, a lot of things go you know, horribly sideways and they started to get bitter. Mm. And then for me, my childhood, a lot of it was, I was molested when we were in Nepal and I never told anybody. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. And so it was just this thing that uh, started developing these lies in my head about who I was to God and what that meant and how could he let this thing happen if he's good and how could, you know, he talk about blessing the faithful if my parents are faithful, but we don't look blessed, you know, there's no, not hashtag blessed in this world. Right. So I'm looking around, I'm looking at them struggling financially. We're struggling with health. We're struggling with just so, so many things. And, you know, probably by, well, by high school for sure, I had just lost all faith that God could be good. Like I just could not reconcile you know, you just look around, you watch the news. You're like, yeah. this is impossible. How could a good God be good? What about your parents' faith at that time? Um, I think they were very bitter. Yeah. They were very ang- they weren't angry with God in the way that um, some might be like leaving the leaving the faith. Um, but they had this very sort of nebulous idea of what the church was, and it was kind of solidarity with missionaries and with the global church, but not actually a local church because the local churches had the ability to hurt us because they were filled with people that could hurt us, you know, and, and they were exhausted. Mm. And so, um, you know, by the time we were, I was in middle school, they weren't going to church anymore. We weren't in fellowship with anybody. And they were very, very bitter about Christian culture and what they saw here and um, a lot of hypocritical, you know, things, which I think a lot of people are struggling with now. I mean, right. a lot of people that I know that are my age are struggling with those same things, going to the church and seeing hey, these things don't line up, you know, what we say we believe and how we're acting out. So yeah, that affected me pretty, pretty deeply. And it affected my relationship with God because we, I just, we had been through so many hard things and I thought it just doesn't make sense, Mm -hmm. you know, to me. So how did your relationship come back to the Lord or how did you ever, if you never had trusted that before, how did you begin to trust that he could still be good in the midst of some really crappy circumstances? Yeah. So um, I have bipolar disorder, but I did not know at the time. Uh, I wasn't even diagnosed until my early thirties. And so there's a lot of mental illness throughout my family and things like that, that um, we just, we didn't have language for it. We didn't talk about it. Um, and so, like, I don't think we even knew, you know, some of the terminology to, to surround what was happening. Which y'all weren't mentally. alone. Wouldn't mm-hmm. you say that would be kind of a, a cultural norm? Right. That, yeah. I mean, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And so I was in, we had moved to back to Hawaii in my teen years. I was in the middle of my junior year. And I was a very 
angry inside, very, very angry and kind of destructive. Um, but on the outside, I was the, like the perfect daughter. I got really good grades. I ran, you know, track. I did drama. I mean, all this stuff. And I had good friends that got good grades. And my brother was, I have a brother that's three years older. He was the one that was a mess. He was the one that punched holes in the walls and got expelled and tried to, you know, hang himself on the back porch when I was in middle school. Like these were the things that they were dealing with with him. So he was the the one that got the most attention. And I was the one that like, they just assumed Ali is going to be fine. She's capable. She's strong. She's, they didn't need to worry about you. They didn't because need to on worry about you. You're doing it on all. On the outward, I, I'm strong. Uh-huh. I'm capable. I'm, you know, able to do the things. And so that was my identity. Um, but on, you know, on the flip side, I was doing all kinds of things that were really bad. Um, a lot out of anger and out of rebellion and, you know, a lot because sometimes that's just fun too, you yeah. know, in high school. Um, and so we moved, my, the, my dad got a ministry a job offer. We moved back to Hawaii. So I was already angry at God. And now God was making my family move back for this ministry. And I just wanted nothing to, I was so angry. And I had a boyfriend and friend, I mean, it's my middle of my junior year. Um, and we get to Hawaii and we fly to the big island, which is where the ministry is supposed to be. And they had this, they were, they're supposed to have a house and a car and all this stuff for us. So we get there and my dad goes, we're like still staying in the hotel. And um, my dad goes to check out the house. And it is like, it is a, I wish I still had the video of it, but there's a concrete slab. Like everything had been gutted. There was rainwater. There were like the squatters had come in this over the years. This is, this is the house we're supposed to live in. No plumbing. Okay. I mean, everything was just ripped out. The br- windows are all broken, mold everywhere. I mean, it was... It, I mean, it was like disaster, disaster. Mm-hmm. And we lived in Nepal in the early eighties in a dung hut. So like, <laughs> we're not talking about like, you know, we don't need, we're not exactly. super high maintenance, but this was like unlivable, you know, standing water with mosquito. I mean, it was just, it was, so my dad obviously contacts the ministry and is like, um, this isn't going to work for my family. And so anyway, through, through a bunch of, of stuff, they, um, they ended up, finding a rental, this boxy little rental up in the hills. And we paid half of the rent and they paid the other half. And they had provided this car that was like this old Mustang that looked like a Pinto and it, the exhaust fume would come in. So you would have to drive around with the window rolled down and a towel so, like that you could open. So we wouldn't so all, didn't asphyx- all yeah, asphyxiate mm-hmm. in the car. Um, and when we moved there, we were on in Pahoa, which is the rainy side of the island. And it, it rained for 42 days straight. Just, it was either drizzling or it was pouring. It was like their monsoon season. And I was just as angry as anybody. I mean, I was so enraged with God because this is what he's called us to. Mm -hmm. And this is what he provides for us. And, you know, if this is what he provides, I don't want anything to do with him. And my parents, especially my dad would always say, you know, God has a call on your life. And, you know, he always believed this. And I was like, you know, F you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and yeah. There's no, I'm, God is nothing. Mm-hmm. He will never have a part of me. Yeah. And I want nothing to do with him. Um, And so after moving there and being in those situations, before we'd moved, I had gotten in an accident driving my friend's car. I didn't have a license. There was a, yeah, a whole court thing. So yeah. I couldn't drive when we moved to Hawaii. So I had no vehicle, no license, no ability to go anywhere on my own, no escape. We were up in the hills. And it's raining for it's 42 raining days. It's raining for 42 days. So it's like, it was basically like a makeshift rehab. All of a sudden I'm in this place where I can't 
numb uh. everything. Because in Albuquerque, I could. I would you know, be with my friends and I could numb it with attention or with boys or with drugs. or with. There was always something mm-hmm. that I could use. And all of a sudden, I'm in isolation. I'm you know, in this house and I have to deal with all of this pain. And it's just, it's too much. And so... I remember one night it was pouring rain and I thought, I'm just I'm like, I remember just coming into my head. I'm like, I'm just done. I'm just done. And the thing that had held me off the longest was, you know, when my brother had attempted death by suicide in my middle school years, I rem- he, he lived and I remember the capillaries had broken in his eyes and he, so his eyes were, you know, bloody and the scar on his neck, you know, it turned purple and brown and yellow. And I remember my mom, the look on her face when she would look at him and see that it just was so traumatic, you know, and we we were trying to put all the pieces back together afterwards. And I remember thinking I would never do that to my mom. Like, you know, as, as angry as I was and as, you know, bitter as I was, I was like, I just can't do that to her. And so that had been sort of had staved off a lot of the the things like I I can't do that. Like I knew that the reality of that. But I was in so much pain and I thought, I just, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. And I remember like looking through our medicine cabinets and trying to think like, what will for sure do the trick? You know, we just didn't have anything in our, our house. And so I've got like this big disposable razor. I'm like, can this even do the thing? You know, can I, will this even work? And I'm standing in, in our bathroom on this cracked linoleum, you know, um, and I'm, yelling at the ceiling, you know, I never asked to be born. Like, Mm. I don't want any, like, you know, I don't even want any of this. Like, why am I even here? Because now I'm thinking I never asked to be born. I never asked for any of this, but if I kill myself, I'm probably going to hell. Like in my head, because of what I'd been raised with, I thought, and and now you're going to punish me for, you know, living in this world that stinks and trying to escape from it because I'm in pain. And, you know, so all of this stuff's going through my head. And I'm thinking, I'm just done. And then I was physically um, knocked to the ground, like slammed to the ground and filled with just peace. Like I still to this day can't really describe it. Well, I love in your book, you're like, I'm not this weird Christian, <sighs> right. but here's what happened, guys. Right. It, and, and even afterwards, I was like, it was probably like my you know, autonomic nervous system, uh-huh. you know, maybe I had a mini stroke. <laughs> like I was like, I was at such, such a high level of stress. Probably my adrenal system kicked yeah. in and my legs collapsed. And I, I was trying to explain away what I felt was the presence of God saying, I like, I want a piece of you. Like, mm-hmm. that's what it felt like. Like he was um, interrupting my life. And I didn't really want to relent to that at the same time. Like I'd never felt anything like that piece. Mm-hmm. And so um, that then became the rest. Like I wouldn't say, oh, and then I got saved right then. It took, it took a long time. I'm yeah. pretty, um, I'm pretty stubborn. And so it took a long time. I would read my Bible in secret behind my locked door because I didn't want my dad to say, I told you so. Right. And I um, started wrestling with God and wrestling with scripture. And, and I don't have a, you know, exact date that like, this is when I accepted yeah. You know, because I did that my whole youth. Mm-hmm. I accepted him every single yeah. time there was an altar well, call. Just in case. Just in case. case and it you got didn't seem like it home. took, yeah. right? Like, uh-huh. I'm like, it didn't really take. Yeah. Like, I, or sometimes I think maybe it took, but then it didn't, you know? And so um, I had done that for years and years and years, always, always. Which is so you know, fear based. Giving my life yes. to get, right. And I remember doing that, like, getting in the car with somebody that was drunk and being like, 
Lord, like, you know, as I were driving, driving, just in case, Mm -hmm. you know, because, and so I don't have an exact like date that I became a Christian, but through the wrestling, um, God started to work in me. And I think I started in Job, which, um, you know, I had read it before, you know, and through the filter of God is just a jerk, Uh right? Like, let's mess with this guy, you know? uh Um, Oh yeah, you can mess with him. Fine. You know, whatever. And for some reason reading it, then um, the Holy Spirit was at work and I just saw something different. Wow. And um, I just saw how God, how God comes for us, Mm -hmm. you know, like he, he comes for us when we're desperate, you know? And I didn't know how profound that would be for my life, you know, for the next, for the next 30 years. But that really has been my story. You know, God comes for me when I'm desperate and meets me in that place where I'm at the end of myself and meets me in a profound and deep way. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned um, mental illness Mm -hmm. in bipolar. Mm -hmm. You state in your book that something like one One in four four, will lose your battle to suicide. Mm -hmm. And you know, mental illness is a topic that we should be talking about mm-hmm. more. Right. Um, I admit my ignorance mm-hmm. um, on the subject, but I'm so here for the conversation right. and to learn. Yeah. I was at a conference last weekend and a woman spoke and um, she said something that has altered my my thought mm-hmm. life about even this statistics that you just told about mm-hmm. suicide. Her husband lost his life to suicide mm-hmm. a year ago. And she said... No one chooses suicide. Mm-hmm. She said, everyone says it's like the most selfish thing you could right. do. Yeah. Well, no one's, no one chooses right. it. And so she says he lost his life by suicide. Right. And that terminology is, was so new for me right. sitting in that room. And I thought, oh, I'll never say it the other way again. Right. Yeah. But I had never understood right. that. Yeah. Um, because I've never been personally affected by suicide or in my close circles. Right. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying never, but you know what right. I mean. Yeah, yeah. And so when you talk about this, mm-hmm. when you're coming at the table, and because I know you write a lot about mm-hmm. this subject, and yeah. I'm so honored and proud that you're sitting here talking with me about it. Um, do you? What do you see from other Christians? Is this like a a scary conversation, a hard conversation? Do we want to just dip our toe in it, or how does that feel when you see the church having conversations about mental illness? I think there are degrees. So I think we're getting a little bit more comfortable with depression. Um, right. When I first started writing, when I had already been diagnosed with bipolar. When I first started writing about mental illness, I used the term depression and only depression, postpartum depression and depression, because bipolar was big and scary. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't even fully accepted it myself. And to talk about it out in the world, I thought people are going to think, you know, I'm crazy. Because in in my mind, that was sort of the mental image that I had of, of this is what it's going to look like. And I like, think society, you know? in a right. little bit, to vend you a little bit, society yeah. has painted that picture right. a little well, bit. Well, it was exactly, I had watched a, a Law & Order SVU episode oh, years yeah. ago. Uh-huh. And it, the woman in it was had bipolar disorder and she was just, you know, out of control and dangerous. And I remember thinking, well, I'm not like, I'm dangerous to myself. Yes, maybe. But to like other people and like, I mean, we're more likely to hurt ourselves than anybody else. So there was those kinds of things that I thought, I don't want it to be associated with that. And so, but depression was something that I think people were starting to understand. It became a little bit more mainstream in that 
people can relate to sadness. Now, there's still a lot of misunderstanding about it um, and how we treat it and how we deal with it in the church. So I'm not saying we're there, but it felt a little more comfortable to talk about depression and For to sure. name it as that than to name it as bipolar disorder. And then the next level to, to talk about suicidal ideation. Because when you when you say, so, you know, a lot of times in our testimonies, right, we would I would say I was this in my childhood and then I had this come to God moment and I was suicidal and then he met me and then that would be like the happy ending that ends. But I still struggle with mm-hmm. suicidal ideation commonly, often, enough that I can say I have this tremendous deep faith in God and I know that I'm beloved and I still sometimes struggle with with this. When I'm, you know, really doing bad, this is something that happens in my head. It's, you know, and so my husband had the same reaction, you know, several years ago, I told him, you know, this is what I'm struggling with and I need you to, he has hunting rifles. I I need you to put them in the gun. I mean, they are in the gun safe already, but like, I need to not ever know where those keys are. And he was like, are you kidding me? Like, that is the most, we have three, you know, and his first reaction was this guttural, like anger. Like, Mm -hmm. how could you be so selfish? Like, why would you even think that? Right. Cause he's thinking, I'm thinking from my rational mind that I'm just going to, you know, what, and he, and he's scared. Mm -hmm. Um, And he, you know, and so that was his first reaction. And I said, honey, like, I'm telling you this because I want to be here. And also I'm struggling that I don't want to be here Mm -hmm. um, or that I can't be here anymore. Mm -hmm. And so for him to come to to terms with that, you know, he is the polar opposite of me. He's never sick ever. He's very strong. He's very capable of, you know, just pushing through. He's very, you know, bootstrappy. Like, Uh you know, I'm, Oh, I've got strep throat. Well, you just, you know, it's like, you know, (laughs) drink some water. Right. He never goes to the doctor. Never, you know, he had surgery on his hand, like full surgery, anesthesia was at work the next day with it just wrapped in. Yeah. You know, like he, he, the doctor's like prescribing like hardcore pain meds. I'm like, just don't even bother. Like, yeah. There's no way he's going to take those. Yeah. Like he's just mm-hmm. going to do what he's going to do. Um, and so he's the, he's the total, you know, he's been married to this person who's incredibly weak. He's sick all the time who, I mean, he, that's not what he signed up for mm-hmm. when he thought, you know, when we met in Hawaii and he was a surfer and I was, you know, like yeah. that's not what we thought our life was going to be. Um, and this is what our life has become. And so the things that we are learning from each other, you know, for him to get to the point where he could understand and empathize with the kind of pain that I was in and with, you know, the things that I was thinking and struggling with and be a support instead of, you know, somebody who was, you know, yeah, that's so yeah. selfish, uh-huh. right? Because uh-huh. in his mind, he can't, he can't relate to that either. Yeah. He doesn't, yeah. you know, have that. And so I think in the church, when we talk about things like that, there is the tendency, if we haven't been near it or touched by it, um, to have those reactions. And the problem with that, I mean, besides just the obvious problem is that there are tons of people that are dealing with it, that are touched by it, that you would never know Mm. are dealing with it and are touched by it. And I, when I started finally writing about bipolar disorder and using it, that, that term Mm -hmm. and talking about it openly, I talk about anxiety. I talk about, you know, bipolar disorder. I talk about depression, starting to talk more about hypomania. People would come up and I would get all of these, you know, for every comment I get, I probably get 10, 20 emails or private messages. Uh So all this stuff is happening behind the scenes. Like it's a very private ministry Mm -hmm. in a way, because there are so many people that they can't, they can't say that they have bipolar disorder because they work in the education system or they're a teacher, or they can't say it because they're in the church and 
it's precarious mm-hmm. to, to, you know, all their judgments after that will be in question. All yeah. their authority will be in question because they're this person that, mm-hmm. you know, can't be, their moods can't be trusted, right? Or they're, you know, so whatever these things are, these positions that they're in, they don't feel safe to be able to talk about it openly. And so when they are struggling and when they are hurting in the church, there is no place um, to really have community yeah. in that way. And to feel understood. And so I remember thinking, I don't know anybody, I think I knew one person that had bipolar disorder. And I was like, they were kind of, you know, just the, the, and not removed from me, not even mm-hmm. somebody really close. And then when I finally started talking about it, I realized there's tons of people that have bipolar disorder that never, that I would never have even, I mean, yeah. people that I already knew that had it, that I didn't yeah. even know had it. And so I think that with mental illness, there's a lot of that. There's a lot that's happening under the surface and, and in secret. And I think, church a lot of times and not always, but a lot of times does not feel safe Mm. at all for people who are struggling with mental illness because people don't understand the idea of that much brokenness in a person not being a sin. Mm. I think too, like the church, I think, I think they're getting better. Yeah. We can say that. But I think the reason probably people feel so unsafe is because for so many people, they would say, Mm -hmm. well, you just need to trust God more. Right. Yeah. Or are you even a Christian? Right. If you were, then you wouldn't have these thoughts. Right. These are totally. of the devil. Yeah. What do you say to those people? Yeah. I mean, I think there are people that have done this work better than me. There are books that are, you know, um, that are better resourced mm-hmm. as far as this kind of stuff. Obviously, I'm not a mental health professional, but in terms of uh, being a layman, somebody that has, you know, struggled through this, I don't think that people understand the difference between an actual biological chemical mm-hmm. imbalance that causes disruptive, you know, and harmful thoughts and moods. And I mean, when I'm severely depressed, my affect even changes, like my rate of speech slows down and my, I mean, like everything is just sludgy, mm-hmm. you know, I write about feeling like my synapses are, you know, sort of insulated in cotton wool. Like there's just, it's just, things aren't coming through the way that they're supposed to. So there's a very physical aspect to depression as well and anxiety and hypomania. Like these are all things, you know, schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. like there's a very chemical thing that is happening. And I think what we think of sometimes because there are terminologies like, so people will say like, oh, I'm having anxiety, right? Or do, do be anxious for nothing, right? right. That's scriptural. Uh-huh. And what they're not realizing is that there's a difference between, you know, generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder and worry. Right. right? And exactly. So what, so, but what we're not, or, there's a difference between being sad, right? And being chemically depressed. Right. And so because we don't necessarily have language that differentiates, differentiates between, that. between that, and because we're not comfortable with being uncomfortable in America, we just aren't. I mean, that's the reality mm-hmm. for across the board. Anything that's uncomfortable, we typically shy away from it if we have the option. When you, when we don't talk about those things because they don't make sense to us or they're not something that we experience, which I think is common for a lot of things, we tend to want to give a platitude and a verse and mm-hmm. tell people to be stronger. Yeah. You know, we we really want to tell people to be stronger when it's something that we're not struggling with. Yeah. I think too, like even when we think about this, proximity matters a lot. And if you said, you know, when you first were Mm -hmm. diagnosed with bipolar disorder, you felt like I know no one else. There's nobody else. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, there are more people. Right. And I think also that goes for lots of areas of our Mm life, socioeconomic, diversity, race, all kinds of things. 
not knowing someone Mm -hmm. who would struggle with this Mm -hmm. would be make your ideas about it completely different than having this personal experience. Mm -hmm. I want to tell you something. I've never said this publicly. Here we go. If I released the book last week, last year, Uh I've told them everyone at my publishing house, if they ever do a reprint, which I don't even know how that happens. There's something I want to change. I did something inadvertently that I wish I wouldn't have done. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's my um, vulnerability here. I have a chapter in my book called Sin Shock. And the premise is when people come with you with their sins, with their struggles, Mm -hmm. as Christians, we need not be shocked. Right. Like we live in a broken world. Yeah. When you come to me and say, oh my gosh, I overreacted and hit my kid on the back when I should have, you know, whatever. Right. I don't need to be like, oh my gosh, you're the worst person I've ever met in my Mm -hmm. entire life. That's that's the premise, right? Right. So in the book, I tell a story and the chapter's called Sin Shock. And I tell a story about a girlfriend of mine Mm -hmm. not wanting to tell people at her church that she's struggling with depression Mm. because her husband's uh, going through the process of becoming a deacon or something. Right. And I'll never forget that conversation with her because I was broken. Right. That she felt so alone. Yeah. And so I tell that story with, we need to be able to tell people about what we're walking through. Right. Well, I don't think depression's a sin. Right. But by putting that in the context, story in right. the context yeah. of that chapter, mm-hmm. um, I've only had a few people reach out and yeah. I will answer every question. Right. But I, w- I, I wish I could change that yeah. because I was not clear about that yeah. in my heart. Yeah. But I think, although I do not think depression's a sin, right. I do think that that is a struggle for some people in the church to differentiate what you just said. Right. And the only way it's going to change is by people like you mm-hmm. having the conversation with me and then people <laughs> understanding and meeting people who are walking through yeah. mental health issues. Right. You know? Yeah. So thank you for talking about it. Yeah. Thank you for letting me confess my <laughs> weird chapter that I weird wish I could, ch- I wish I, I you know, I there's wish stuff I, could, I already wish I could change and my book came yeah. out a week ago. So I hate it that people would think my heart was off on that. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. 
I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. This whole book that you talk about is glorious weakness and mm-hmm. finding God in the weakness and finding God in that. Um, and I, I started off the show by reading a part about what you said about maybe this is my spiritual gifting. Mm-hmm. Um, what has being weak, we're all weak, but I'll use your words. What has your weakness? How has it, a couple of things. Why do you love God more because of it? Mm-hmm. And how has it affected your parenting, your marriage? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So I I went to that conference to speak and I thought I was going to be like very well prepared. And then I was horrendously sick for months ahead of time. Didn't even think I was going to make it there. Um, And then like, I think two weeks before I got better and I was like, I guess I'm going. Like it was like, but I wasn't very prepared. I mean, it just was. And I remember going there on the night before feeling like God, I had the outline, but I felt like God was wanting me to take it in a little bit of a different direction. And so I rewrote everything and it was like the middle of the night, but I was on steroids before my lungs. So I was already up. And, yeah. um, and then the morning I thought, I, I don't know if enough, know if I'm going to be able to breathe. And I got up there to speak and I remember, yeah, it was, I was preaching and I was preaching from a place that wasn't done. And there was something about it that was just really powerful. And I am not typically the type of person that like, my speaking was really powerful, (laughs) but I could feel the Holy Spirit moving because I just, he needed to like be there because I was, I didn't have anything. And I, I think what I've realized in my life is that there are so many people in pain, so many people um, wondering, is God good? Mm. Does he love me? What, you know, if he does love me and if he is good, then why? Yeah. Why 
can I not get pregnant? Why have I lost this child? Why am I still single? Why did my job not turn out? Why won't these medications work? Why did I just get diagnosed with this? Why am I back in this cycle? Right. And so, so much of our life is in this middle space of yes, we believe and kingdom come and Jesus is Lord. And also like, we're so broken and saying that Jesus is Lord doesn't necessarily tidy everything up, right? Like the, the, the idea in church, a lot of times, you know, we talk about giving our testimony and, and if you're, if you're in Christian culture at all, the youth group, right, you get your practice, like your five to 10 minute testimony. And yep. you start with like, I used to do this Free Jesus, and yeah. then like, and now I do this mm-hmm. because I'm a Christian. And, you know, a lot of it is about how faithful we are and, you know, to like change, you know, whatever, instead of how faithful God is to us. Yeah. All right. Cause that's really our, all of our testimony is never like how we're faithful. It's yeah. always how God's faithful to us. And I remember thinking about the opportunity for people to enter into other people's pain when there is an, when there's honesty there, when there's vulnerability there, you know, we connect on a different level when we're able to express honestly, the things that we are feeling and struggling with and going through, not just with other people, but with God. You know, I, even in my book, I talk about, there was a long period of time where I wouldn't even admit to God that I was, you know, like my prayers were like, well, I'm supposed to pray this way Uh to God. Everything's going to work out. I trust you, Uh you know, instead of being like, I don't trust you. You know, I I want to believe, but help my unbelief. Right. I believe I'm claiming that, but Oh Lord, I doubt, right? And and we don't have space for that. We don't have space for a lot of those conversations. And so what we have are are very um pat answers. We have a lot of just things that we say that we slap onto all the hard things and not necessarily people that walk through that. And what I've found through my weakness is that that you know, that the fact that there are a lot of people hurting and that I get so, I mean, that was part of it. I get so many emails from people that are hurting and they're private. Mm-hmm. They're always private. Yeah. You know, it's never the person in the comments. I mean, even since the book came out, like part of the thing is, you know, I'm just like, I can't respond to mm-hmm. all of the, there are just, as people are reading it, you know, there's things that are coming out and I get so many emails that I've never told anybody this. Yeah. Right. And you're holding these people's, stories and you're trying to steward this space. And, and what I'm saying is God broke all of this open as an invitation, Mm. right? He, there's an invitation to be honest and to connect and to see God in a reality where we can talk to him. Like we know him, Mm. we can talk to him like he's our friend. And for years, I didn't know that I could do that, you know? Um, and so to be able to to come to God and say, Lord, I'm hurting or, or come to God angry and have, you know, the prayers, like we looked at the Psalms and I think, gosh, if I wrote a blog post that was like <laughs> some of these Psalms, right. people would be checking on me, right? <laughs> yeah, They'd uh-huh. be like, oh, I don't know if you should put all that out there, right? Because we're not comfortable with it mm. because the, the Psalms are a long time ago and we know how that ends, yeah, right? Yeah, we know the ending. Right? So we're like, okay, but those weren't writ- written. A lot of them are not written with an ending, right? They're, they're written with just sitting in mm-hmm. that lament, sitting in that pain. And we just are not 
good at it. We're just not. And so I think that weakness is an opportunity to have no other options. We don't, you know, I talk a lot about being poor in spirit. What does that mean? And there's a very real, you know, aspect of poverty that's, that I've lived with in my life. And so there is this idea of, you just don't have any choices. Mm -hmm. Like there are no choices. And when we are in that sort of desperate space with God, we see him move in a way that we don't see when we have our options, when we have our things that we can rely on. And I don't think most of us, if we have the option, put ourselves in, you know, purposely displace ourselves from comfort and safety. And we, you know, none of us do that. If we, if we don't have to, we don't do it Mm -hmm. because we like the, the freedom that we have in choice. We like the power we have in safety. We like all of the things that keep us, Feeling like, yeah, and comfortable feeling like and control. feeling like we don't really have to rely on God too much, right. like a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, he, we want him involved in our life, um, but, but not if he takes away, yeah, right? And how do we live with a God? How do we say blessed is the name of the Lord when he takes away? What, you know, when that's what our life looks like. Yeah. And for so many people, that is what they're struggling with. These cycles of, you know, Lord, why did you take this from mm-hmm. me? And are you enough to fill what's empty. Yeah. And the truth is he is. For sure. But you don't always know that until you've been there, mm. until you really press in and you realize, oh my gosh, like he is enough. He's worth it. He's worth it. And, you know, people might look at some of the circumstances in my life and think, you know, are you sure? Right, right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Are you sure? And, you know, I can say more in the last five, 10 years, I'm absolutely sure. It's beautiful. And I think so many times when we are vulnerable with our stories Mm -hmm. and we're willing to kind of go first, what you're seeing happen is what happens. People come out of the woodworks going, wow, I get this. Me too. I've been through this. Do you, and you've always written from a very vulnerable place Mm -hmm. and, you know, online. Do you remember the first time you shared something super, super vulnerable? I don't remember the first time um, because I think I started writing in a pretty I started, well, actually I started my blog. It was going to be like a sewing DIY homeschooling Uh blog, right? So when I started- Sewing at homeschool? Yes. I love it. It was going to be all that. Okay. And then I realized I hate talking about (laughs) it. I don't like to take pictures of the steps. Uh But I had this blog and I, and, um, and so then I was like, well, what do I, you know, do with this blog? And I'd always liked writing um, privately, you know, in my journal and things like that, but I'd never written publicly. And then shortly after I had my blog set up, I started going through a very, very, this was, this was the depression that actually led to my diagnosis of bipolar. I was severely depressed for about four months and not functioning. I mean, on almost any level. And, um, but I would write these blog posts and, um, and so I don't remember like a distinct, like, oh, this, because I think I was so, in, like, I was in so much pain and I was so numb and sad and all of the things with depression that I don't know that I really registered uh-huh. what I was putting out into the world at the time. Like, yeah. I think there's a part of me that if I had thought it all through, I probably <laughs> would have been like, mm, maybe not say maybe this, not that. you know, yeah. but I think that at the time, the place that I was, and also I was, I was, you know, I just started blogging, so it's not like, You're you know, like, it's like my mom reading is yeah. going to know, uh, yeah. you know, and she lives with me and knows anyway, right. you know? So I didn't think that I had a very big audience of people listening anyway. So it was, it felt a it little felt bit a little more easier. Yeah. 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 Um, 
I think that that is a good place that you started there. You know, you're like, <laughs> right. hey, I'm going to get my feet wet with right. three people um, yeah, right. reading my blog and stuff. Yeah. As we're thinking about mental illness, and I keep thinking about this, is what what is your, maybe not advice or encouragement, uh-huh. but like, let's put me in a situation. And let's say I have a girlfriend mm-hmm. who I don't understand what she's walking mm-hmm. through. There are times I think, I don't just get up. Like, I don't know why right. we're still in bed. Like, right. what are we doing? Right. But I don't want to think that. Right. But I don't understand. Right. How do I, or anybody that's listening, mm-hmm. how do we be the friend to that person that that person needs? Yeah. Um, I remember having a conversation once with a friend of mine, and um, she's great. She's awesome. But she has a relative that um, was dealing with depression, and I remember she had had said some things that were along the lines of, like, we you know, went out of our way to see this person and they couldn't get out, even like, they couldn't even bother to like entertain us, you know, or, mm-hmm. or be there, be as present as they needed them to be. And it was kind of this hassle and sort of this idea of like, we came all the way out here. Why are you not just getting out of bed? Why don't you just yeah. go for a walk? Why don't you just do all these things? And I remember talking to her and saying, you know, reframe it as something that we have compassion for automatically. Mm. And there are things in society that we have compassion for. We have compassion for cancer patients. If you're fr- if you went to your friend's or relative's house and they had cancer and they couldn't get out of bed, you would probably be a pretty terrible person. You're like, oh my gosh, we drove all the right. way here and this right. cancer patient can't get out of bed, right? To do all of these things for us. Because there's a compassion built into that experience. Um, there are certain illnesses that we have compassion for and there are certain that we don't, right? The ones that we think we brought on ourselves, we don't have compassion for that. And depression is one of those that we think people have brought on themselves by not choosing joy, by not being grateful enough, by not seeing all that they have, by not having a strong enough prayer life, by not having the faith. You know, all of those things surround our idea of what causes depression, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not making the right choices and therefore they are in bed. And if they would just get up and, you know, we know sunshine helps if they would just go outside. We know that being with people, you know, all of these things that we, so we think, well, if, if you just did this, then, right. Um, and, And so we don't have compassion for people that are hurting in that space. And so I think sometimes to reframe it in our minds, would I say the same thing or feel the same thing if this person had something that I am compassionate about, right? right? That mm-hmm. I do care about. What would I? What kind of friend would I be to that person? Mm. So if you go to your friend's That's house good. and she had cancer, what would you do? You probably bring food so she doesn't have to get out of bed. You might bring flowers so that she has something to look at while she's there. You might bring her her magazines that she loves to read. Mm-hmm. There, there, there would just you be would other things. You would check and, on yeah. her. You would make sure that her laundry is done or, you know, whatever. And I always say like for deep friends, um, depression tends to tend not for everybody. And, you know, you always hope that it's like a one and done. And then, you know, somebody goes through a season of depression, they come out and they don't ever struggle with it again. Like that's always the hope. But for a lot of people, it's chronic and it happens and it, it will cycle and they will go through depressions again. So one of my things, one of my advice to people is if you have a close friend that does struggle with anxiety or mental illness or those kind of things that are um, more likely to be chronic, ask them in a time of health, what, what, I hope you never struggle with this again, but if you do, how can I best love you? Mm-hmm. Like, tell me the things that I could do so I have a plan in place when I see you 
starting to struggle, when I see you, you know, unable to do these things or, or just, you know, what, what can I do That's good. that is personal to you? Mm-hmm. I remember one time I'm a super hardcore introvert. And so I, sometimes people will be like, I'll bring you a meal. And I'm like, okay, oh, I don't want to in my head. I'm like <laughs> the thought of getting out of bed, putting on, you know, clothes that I can answer my door and uh-huh. answering my door, listening to somebody say all the things that they're going to say, talking about how to reheat the oven and put the thing, you know, I just like the thought of it is so exhausting to me that I'm like, I'd rather just starve. I mean, like I will just starve, Yes, you know, and I like food a lot. So, you know, that's saying something. So I'm like, I remember thinking like, I need a, like a check checklist, like what Enneagram type are you? What are you going to expect from me? How much time do we, you know, because I, I feel like I am using every ounce of energy to survive right now, Mm. to stay alive. It's all going to just, keeping me alive and I can't make small talk. And I, and I, even with like people that I love and even with people that, um, it just, it costs too much energy. Yeah. And so I remember one time I was in, um, I don't even remember what it was. It was years ago, but one of the women knew that I was going through a really severe depression and she started a meal train, but they put a giant igloo cooler on my front porch and they brought meals and put them in there. And then when my husband got home, he would take them out and put them in the freezer or whatever. And I didn't have to see anybody or deal in, with anybody, but it was a tangible way for them to say, we see you and we're validating that this is a real thing that you're struggling with, right? Because for for people that are yeah. sick, we do that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it just, it meant so much That's to me that, that not only would they love me, but they would love me in a way that was specific to what I needed yeah. at that time, yeah. you know? It almost reminds me of the um, age, cri- age crisis in the 80s, mm-hmm. how everyone was like, we don't know how, what to do with this, right. you know? Yeah. And how it has right. thankfully progressed yeah. right. into people having the same compassion for someone with <clears throat> HIV as they would with someone right. with diabetes or cancer. Right. But at that time it was just like, no right. compassion, right? Because we don't get this. Yeah. Um. I want to ask you another question before we finish, and that is, you have three kids, mm-hmm. and so um, this journey, this glorious weakness that you mm-hmm. see yourself walking through, that you see God so abundant mm-hmm. through your weakness. Um. What has that been like at the same time parenting three people? Because um, I always say that parenting is is by far the hardest job I'll ever get through. Mm-hmm. Like if all these people make it out of here, <laughs> then we have like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, it's hard work on so many level, is, levels, yeah. physical, emotional, spiritually. How has that been for you as someone who was saying, I'm going to um, acknowledge my weakness, which we all do, but in the context of what you're writing about here, how has that affected your parenting? Um, well, there's, there's, that's like a whole nother book, but yeah. um, (laughs) The I see book number two right here, Leah, here we go. That's another book. Um, I wasn't diagnosed until I was early thirties. So my oldest, who's 18, had the brunt of instability. Okay. And he grew up with a mom who was in my twenties, extremely legalistic, like very, very strict. First time obedience. If I say something, you know, I don't ever want to have to repeat myself. He was very, very obedient, very well behaved, but typical first child all, almost. Right? Yeah. All uh-huh. of the like, and and I was very, I was in a more hypomanic phase for extended periods. Can I you wasn't, just explain hypomanic real quick? Yeah. So the depression is obviously what we know the the low end, right, where we're super depressed. Hypomanic phase typically is um, 
the upswing of bipolar depression. So I have bipolar two, which means I have hypomania instead of just, um, just straight manic. Um, although I, I have characteristics of both. So mania typically is more extreme. Bipolar one is more extreme in that they can have, you know, visions and, and psychotic like breaks and episodes that are, that are, have other features, okay. um, additional features, hypomanic. So when I'm hypomanic, I can, I can survive on two hours sleep. Oh gosh. Yeah. I have all of the ideas in the mm-hmm. whole world. Uh, I have sort of grandiose confidence, uh, that I can do all the, th- like totally not my normal, but I'm like, I will start a blog. I will learn Latin. <laughs> yeah. I will, you know, I will repaint all my furniture in my whole house. Yeah. Right. And things that you could almost, I mean, this is part of the thing. I, I almost thought that's just my normal self. And then this is my depressed self. Um, irrational spending where you're like, I have to buy all the cleaning products right. at Walmart at two in the morning. Uh-huh. Right. And then I'm walking through the thing with all these organic $200 <laughs> in organic cleaning products that we do not have the money for, you know? Yeah. And my husband's like, what is happening? Mm-hmm. Like what is going on? Or I would get these, you know, things. So very fixated on certain things, um, scrambled thoughts, uh, the worst part of it is a lot of agitation and frustration because nobody's keeping up with you. And so this and, is your parent. This is where mm-hmm. you are when you're parenting right. your, your yes. oldest. So a lot of anger, tons of yelling. Which I'm a, like a very, very calm, chill mom now, like which is interesting. But that that part of it, he got the most of that. So his uh, discipleship sort of process of parenting him has been interesting because he has had two very different theologies about who mm. God is. And the first one is, we are pleasing to God because we homeschool and we watch the right things and we do the right things and we say the right things and you are first time obedient and we are all very obedient, da, 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 outside, right? All the outside of the cup is super clean, shiny. Mm-hmm. Um, inside, just death. Like God loves us because of how we act. Yes. And I would say grace is in there. For but sure. Grace was the thing that got you saved. Uh-huh. And now we work really hard uh-huh. to please God, right? We're not pleasing to God on, on, on our own. Like we have to do all of these things and perform. No idea of what it means to be beloved mm. by God. No idea of what grace actually, like how absurd God's grace is. Not, there's just none. And so I think he grew up with a lot of that in the beginning. And then I started to break down. Uh, I started to fall apart. I started to get sick. I started to have more, you know, and all of a sudden this facade of comp- you competence. You couldn't keep it up. I couldn't keep it up. And it was devastating to me because I had always been able to do the things and now I couldn't do the things. And um, it was humiliating because I was one of those people in the, in my twenties that was like, uh, I remember taking a spiritual gifts test once. And I had like, if I could have a negative number on mercy, it would have been like negative <laughs> 20, but it was like zero, uh-huh. like none, no mercy at all, all judgment. Like if they are in that thing, that's their, like they made the choices and they're Get not following together. God. And uh-huh. you know, you know, you've obviously duh, you know, and just no compassion for, or empathy for people, um, but a lot of truth, you know, very, lots of exhortation. Um, and so for me, when I had that shift with, with my oldest and started to break down and started to really be met by the grace of God, my parenting radically shift. Mm. Uh, so with my second two, they have experienced a God that adores them and that loves us in our weakness and mm-hmm. that meets us in the places that we're broken and that 
that is just well pleased with us. Mm. Like he just loves us. Right. And so they have experienced that and a a lot more tenderness in parenting and my, my son too, but it was, it was just this, it was like dynamic shift, right? Like mom is this Uh and now mom is this and now God, God was this and now God is this, you know? And so I do think that he sometimes is still struggling between those, you know, like I think it's, it's probably a harder shift for him in terms of that. But I also think, you know, my kids, it's hard to parent kids when you're not well. Mm. And there are impacts from me being sick that I know affect them. Like there, there are things that I can't do in my lack. There are places that are uh, things that don't get done, things that are not fulfilled. And there has to be a trust in God and and his grace Mm. that he is enough, not just for me, but for them. And I think that it's, you know, I've struggled with, with mom guilt of like, at my worst depressions, I think, they would all be better off without me because mm-hmm. I'm going to go through this again and I'm going to struggle again. And the voice in my head says, you can just end it and you'll go off somewhere and you'll just, they won't, you know, you won't leave anything to clean up. It'll all be really tidy and they'll just move on. Like in my mind when I'm sick, this is what, this is what I'm doing something better for them. Mm-hmm. They will have a better mom than me, you know, and not realizing God, gave them me yeah. and he's equipped to meet them in the places that I can't. And that, that is, that is actually a great experience for them to realize that no one is going to meet them the way that yep. God can. No one, you know? And, um, and so there are places that I know I am not meeting my ch- children's needs in, in all of the ways that I wish that I could. And that, that's not an excuse. Obviously I'm trying, but I'm human and I will fail and that's Okay. It's okay for them to see me fail. It's okay for them to see me um, have to ask for forgiveness when I get it wrong. It's okay for them to know that grace covers everything that we do. Like I want them to know that, that I adore them and that I love them and that, you know, I'll always ask for forgiveness if I'm wrong, that we can be humble enough to admit we don't all have it together. You know, in my twenties, I was the mom that you did not question Uh because I am the authority and I know everything and I've read a parenting book, right? (laughs) All the parenting books. Yes. Um, and then in my 30s and, you know, now I'm 40, I've realized mom gets it wrong and it's okay for all of us to come to grace, like to, to know that this this is a reality, like we yeah. actually need this, yeah. right? Yeah. And that God loves us in it and he meets us in it. I think it's so beautiful. We're talking about, a you know, a, a parent-child relationship here, mm-hmm. here. But what I'm thinking when you're saying this is, it is so true that in all of our relationships, we cannot be everything to everybody. Right. Yeah. And we um, we can't because we're broken right. and because we're sinful. Yeah. And there is always that missing link and right. it is where God can step in. And right. so that is an encouragement to us moms yeah. that are listening, but you don't have to be a mom to understand that. Right. You know, that yeah. is a humanity thing is right. that we were never, we don't have the capacity right. to meet everyone's needs. Yeah. I cannot thank you enough yeah, for this thanks book. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. And although I haven't read it all, I will finish this book. <laughs> and that means a lot because I get a lot of books in the mail. I always ask people, what are they loving and what are they reading? So okay. what I are forgot, you loving and what are you reading? I totally forgot what I what I said. Um, I love my Voxer app. You did say that. Okay. Because it keeps me in touch with all of my writer friends, especially with book launch and everything going on. And through the whole writing process, like, you're writing in, in isolation. Oh, it's so isolating. And it's exhausting. And you think like, is this even good? Or <laughs> And so, you know, I'd be up at five in the morning 
And I would use my Voxer app and, you know, oh my gosh, I, I, everything I wrote is horrible. You yeah. know, and they would like talk me down and celebrate with me. And so that, that has, I don't even know how I would, I uh, have finished the book. I actually have that in my acknowledgements. Voxer app. I'm like, if I couldn't have done it without you. Um, what else do I love? I love, oh, on Twitter, I had asked one time, what food most reminds you of your childhood or something like that. And I got all these answers and it was really interesting because some were obviously like good answer, Uh you know, like, Oh, my grandma used to make, and then others were like, you know, ketchup sandwiches because that's all we could Mm -hmm. afford or, you know, and so it was so interesting, like the different dynamics to what, what food most reminds you of your childhood, right? Something like that. And this one woman, um, another Asian lady said, she has like rice and I think she used tuna, but like this Japanese mayonnaise and sriracha and futakaki, which is like seaweed sprinkle. And anyway, she ex- described this like snack that she used to have. And I was like, oh, that sounds delicious. So I, um, my little guy, my, well, I call him little, he's 10. My little he's guy, your little he's one, my yeah. little guy. Um, he's super picky and he eats, but he doesn't eat like a lot of normal kid foods. Like he's picky, but in a weird sort uh-huh. of way. And so, Finding stuff to, that, like, I can feed him. Um, my older two, I was, you know, like, this is what it is and just eat it. Yeah. But he had a, um, some health things. And so his with his blood sugars, he we had to get him to eat all the time. And so we just kind of, like, the doctor's like, just give him whatever uh-huh. he will eat, you know. And so he, now he does not have that issue anymore. He's grown <laughs> out of it. But, you know, he's totally spoiled. And yeah. he's the last one. And grandma lives with us, right? So, but anyway, so that snack is like it's really kind of a mini meal, but um, I, that's something that I love. Very delicious. It is so good, and it's easy. Did oh. you say Japanese mayonnaise? Yeah, so it's Kewpie, like K E W P I E. I'm get a mayonnaise Asian, lover. You can get it at Asian markets, okay. and it comes in like a squirt tube with like a little baby on. Okay, <laughs> I don't know. I'm down for that. But yeah, if you mix it with like sriracha, mm. it's like you just can eat it with all, all the stuff. It's really good. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Are you reading and loving anything these days? Yeah. So I was in um, Portland the other day with my uh, daughter. She travels with me sometimes when she can. Um, and we went to Powell's because she has book money. Like she, she's And you re- just should when you're there. Yeah, yeah, right. And so I didn't have book money, but she had book uh-huh. money. But then I got there and they had um, Dorothy Day. I don't know. She, uh, what is it? The Reckless Way of Love, I think. Okay. And I had read one of her other, I'd read The Long Loneliness before and I love her and I love some of the quotes that she had. So my daughter bought me that. That was nice of her to she, use your, her you know, book money. It was. She bought herself a lot of stuff too, but she did buy me a couple of books. So uh-huh. it kind of goes around because, yeah. you know, next time I'll get her. But um, that one and um, Brian Doyle, I don't know if you're familiar with, he's, he was a, a writer that uh, worked for, um, he lived in Portland okay. and he, he's passed away now a couple of years ago, but it's a, the book of uncommon prayer. Oh, okay. Yeah. And nice. he, he does prayers on like baseball and ballet. I mean, uh-huh. like just random, but he's such a good writer. Um, I just love his. You can read anything he puts out. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So I got that. And then Placemaker, Chrissy Purifoy. Yes. I have not gotten 
like far, far at all because again, I'm, life. Yeah, and then the Atlas of Red and Blues or Blues and Red. Okay, I don't know. It's a fiction book about a woman who is shot by police officers okay. and some of that. So okay. I just started that. Um, and I haven't gotten far, but I like it so far. Okay. Are you a multiple book person? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. One fiction book. I only read one fiction at a time. Because story, you get lost. Yeah. yeah. But, um, and I'm one of the, I'm a book quitter. So if I get into, like. You'll oh, give up? Oh, for sure. I won't quit. I always quit. I'm all, I'm I like, have to go no. all the way. Mm-mm. Life's too short. <laughs> That's a good rule right there. Um, Aaliyah, thank you so much. Yes, thanks so much for having thanks me. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks yeah. for encouraging women. Um, Honored to sit down with you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Guys, I hope you enjoyed the show. My hope in this kind of conversation is awareness. Um, I'm so proud of Aaliyah for her courage, her vulnerability, and her confidence in who God made her to be. With her stories that she shared today in the book that she wrote, I just hope that you've learned as much as I have. And so thank you, Aaliyah, for talking with us and champion just the awareness of mental health. So thank you, thank you, thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. Today's show is edited by Chris with Podshaper, and the music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by Aki Slackers, and this whole thing is organized by Lindsay Sweeney. Next week, my guest is Pam Tebow. Yes, Tim Tebow's mom. Pam was in the house. She sat down in the studio a couple months with me. We chatted it up, and just the cutest thing ever is that she calls Tim Tebow Timmy. Like, she literally calls him Timmy the whole time. I love it. Pam's going to talk a lot about just being confident in your motherhood journey. And she's got some amazing stories. She's going to talk about how scary and scary. It was just so scary, her pregnancy with Tim and how God moved through that. It was a fun conversation. So come back next week, the first week of June. Pam Tebow will be here. Guys, enjoy your week. Share the show with a girlfriend. Have a happy hour with a friend. We're toasting to the end of school year. We made it, mamas. We made it, kids. We can do this. I'll see you guys next week with Pam Tebow. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.